Welcome to the podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin. This is Pastor Hendricks. What you're about to hear is a lecture that was given as part of a conference here at Faith in October of 2022 called Our Great Heritage, sponsored by Return to Wittenberg. The conference was celebrating Luther's translation of the New Testament into German uh, in 1522. Uh, and so the conference focused on our heritage, our great heritage, uh, since that time. So lectures were given on Our Heritage of Christian Liberty by Dr. Adam Kuntz, Our Heritage of Worship by Cantor Daniel Baker, Glorious Now We Press Toward Glory, uh, really a heritage of our glory uh, and our bodies uh, by the Reverend Dagan Siepert, and finally another presentation by Dr. Adam Kuntz on Our Heritage of God's Gifts. These are all part of a free conference a free conference in the sense that it's an open theological dialogue, uh, free, that, that one is able to attend and present without officially declaring, uh, representing or declaring fellowship with others in attendance or any synodical group, uh, including even uh, our own church. Uh, but we are happy to host these uh, presenters, uh, and uh, it was edifying and educational to all those who were in attendance, and I hope the same is true for you. Uh, please enjoy uh, the lecture. Good afternoon, everyone. I think we have a few stragglers still making their way up from the basement, but it's time that we get started. And uh, so I'm going to introduce our next speaker. Our next uh, speaker is uh, Mr. Daniel Baker. He is the cantor, the director of music for the Return to Wittenberg organization. He also serves as organist at St. John's. Um, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, I believe. Is that the Howell Avenue, St. John's, or which one is it? Oakwood Road. So th that's the, the distinction there on Oakwood Road, um, right near the interstate. Anyway, I've known Daniel for, what is this, 2022? So about 10 years, and it was 10 years ago we planned a little Vesper service down in Milwaukee, and um, that's what we've been doing ever since, it seems. Um, it's been a pleasure to know Daniel, and then last year to see him uh, tie the knot with another friend of ours, um, Emily. And actually, they just celebrated their one-year anniversary, so happy anniversary to Daniel and Emily. Uh, Daniel is just the treasure trove of information when it comes to Lutheran worship and Lutheran hymnody. And uh, so at this time... We're going, actually, I neglected to say um, he is a Schalk scholar from Concordia, Chicago. He is, uh, has that distinction and that honor. Um, also going for his doctorate from the University of Birmingham. Um, so anyway, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome Daniel Baker. Thank you, David. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. God of grace and God of glory. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Thank you, thank you. Wasn't expecting that. That's good, though. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. These hymns and this text that I just read for you came from a church I visited just this past weekend. Where do you think it might have been? Just think to yourselves. This is not interactive like yesterday. Frankly, it could be anywhere. Could be Presbyterian, could be Episcopal, could be Lutheran. Those hymns are all in our hymnal. But it was a Roman Catholic church. In fact, it was the Basilica dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, also known as Holy Hill, in Milwaukee. I'm not making a moral judgment on those hymns. The texts are fine. The melodies may be aesthetically pleasing to you. But without a doubt, those texts, those hymns, they're not Lutheran in origin. And Lutheranism is not the end-all and be-all of orthodoxy in the sense that Lutheranism, by that moniker, began 500 years ago. But we do recognize ourselves, as Dr. Kuntz mentioned, as the continuation of the true Catholic Church. We call ourselves evangelical because the Reformation reclaimed that idea of the centrality of the word and particularly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Like we talked about yesterday, if you were here, that was given practical expression in the worship life of the church, particularly through the Lutheran chorale. And we discussed a number of philosophical implications that drove Luther to the creation of the chorale, but in particular, three elements that really codified what we know as the chorale today, and the importance of those things, not only in the chorale itself, but in Lutheran worship entirely. We talked about its idiomatic character. We talked about it yesterday from a German perspective, right? He wanted it to speak German. What did that mean, specifically? Think about some of the chorales that we've sung already in the last two services that we've had together. Just take, for example, one of the ones from last night, By Grace I'm Saved. Just speak in your mind the words. I'll speak them out loud for you. By grace I'm saved, grace free and boundless. You feel the emphasis there? It matches what you're singing. By grace I'm saved, grace free and boundless. The emphases of the words match the melody. And that's part of that idiomatic character of the text. But it was also traditional. Luther used the example of the church, the Latin melodies, and more importantly, the biblical example of the Psalter. Someone asked a question about the Erfurt and Curidion, which is the second Lutheran hymnal. But the first Lutheran hymnal, the Achleder, it bore this inscription. Canticle and psalm, according to the pure word of God from the Holy Scripture, made by several learned people to be sung in church as already practiced in part in Wittenberg. Luther and the other early hymn writers of the Lutheran tradition viewed these chorales as the pure word of God. They viewed them 
as a Germanic idiomatic expression for their culture of what the Hebrews had been doing for thousands of years, of what the medieval church had done in Latin, and now what they wanted to bring for the common people into German. And that points to the third element. Beyond idiomatic and traditional, it's participatory. Because prior to that, music was the domain largely of clerics and trained choirsters, and then that abstract sense that academics would have thought of it in, right? But the common people would not be participating in worship. Worship was something that was offered by the priest primarily. That was the point of worship in the medieval church. Luther inverted that model and restored true Catholic participatory worship, the understanding that we are not offering God a sacrifice primarily. We do offer our praise and thanksgiving, right? But the main thing that God wants us to receive, to do, to worship him in the divine service is to receive from him his blessings, his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation, which then empower us to live our lives of service to others. That understanding is the birth of the liturgical and worship tradition of the Lutheran Church. Before I go further, though, why, why does this matter? If We can laud that Catholic Church I went to for having those evangelical-seeming hymns, right? For having a sermon text that's focused on ostensibly justification by faith, what makes us unique from them? What makes us unique from the swath of Western Christianity today that can hardly be differentiated one from the other? As well-meaning as that may seem, that is not necessarily authentic to Roman Catholic tradition, right? You don't go to a Roman Catholic church expecting to hear God of grace and God of glory. Just as you would not expect to go to a Presbyterian church and hear Gregorian chant in the Latin. You might, but you wouldn't expect to. So too, the Lutheran Church has a unique cultus of worship that binds us together. For what is more uniting as an identity than what we do together on Sunday morning? That is our chief expression of who we are, not just as Lutherans, but as Christians. And if we want to retain our identity as an evangelical church, as an evangelical tradition, then we need to not only understand our evangelical tradition from a worship perspective, but we also need to know why it's worth preserving and passing on to the next generation. So with that in mind, I want to start where evangelical worship started. And this is a little foretaste for you for what we're going to be focusing on next year at Return to Wittenberg's conference in 2023, because we are living in a wonderful time of quincentennials, starting in 2017 with the quincentennial of the Reformation. It seems like every year we have something. Last year was Diet of Worms. This year we have the translation of the New Testament. Next year is the birth of the evangelical liturgy. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the Formula Misse and then the Deutsche Messe, which came out three years later. We're not going to emphasize strictly the Formula Misse, though we will talk about it next year. But before the Formula Misa came out, the order of divine service for the congregation was born. And that is the basis of all the other liturgies that were born out of our evangelical tradition. And if you turn in your packet, 
I've given you a printout of the order of divine service that Luther himself wrote. And for the sake of those on the recording, I'm just going to read through this with you because I think it's really pertinent and valuable to do so. So starting there, the order of divine service. The Ordnung Gottesdienst in der Gemin. I don't speak German, forgive me. The order of divine service in the congregation of 1523 laid out many suggestions for what worship should look like, ranging from less formal study of the Bible in the divine office, like we've been doing here in Lauds and Vespers and Compline, to the fuller celebration of the Mass and Vespers on the Lord's Day. The Ordnung also established basic principles for evangelical worship, and this is really what's central here. These five main principles are what Luther outlines as what evangelical worship will look like regardless of tradition, regardless of culture. One, the word is central. As the primary aspect of evangelical worship, the word is central. All public worship should involve preaching and prayer. He said if there's no preaching, you shouldn't bother. That was, that was his view, including for the office. Two, the chants and liturgical texts that conform to the scripture should be retained. This harkens back to what I was talking about with the chorale. He wanted to retain those church melodies. Three, the ministers are responsible for maintaining liturgical worship. We're not dispensing with our clerics. They're still responsible for orderly divine service. Four, the cult of the saints should be abolished, but the biblical feast retained. In other words, away with traditions of men, but we're not getting rid of the baby with the bathwater. And five, the sacrament should be offered every Sunday and whenever it is desired. The chief divine service, the Hauptgottesdienst, is, in Luther's view, a giving of the sacrament, right? So that is a main element as well. I'm going to continue reading. Luther's publication of the Formula Mise shortly after the Ordnung was a practical manifestation of these evangelical ideals. At the outset, he again maintained, it is not now nor ever has been our intention to abolish the liturgical service of God completely, but rather to purify the one that is now in use from the wretched accretions which corrupt it and to point out an evangelical use. This reality was instantiated in the Formula Mise's retention of the traditional ordinary of the Mass, collects, chants, and cycle of lessons, but with the restoration of an overarching evangelical paradigm. This paradigm distilled to its core can be understood from the first of Luther's evangelical principles of worship. The word is central. For Luther, the heart of that word was the evangelical doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the context of worship, this meant understanding the mass as gift, like I talked about before. It's God's work for us when we understand divine service. It's not something we're offering to the divine but rather what the divine is offering to us, God's work for us, rather than the dogma of human works that plagued what Luther called the abomination of the mass, in other words, the papal mass in the papal church, which they imagined they were and are offering for the propitiation of the sins of the living and the dead. So, the Formula Mise was not the beginning of Luther's liturgical tradition. 
the order of divine service was, the formula mise was an evangelical expression of what the Latin mass should have looked like in the medieval system. It did not because of those papal accretions. He purged it of those things and presented the church with an evangelical tradition of the Latin mass. And the Latin mass continued in our evangelical tradition for hundreds of years after Luther, in places where people were learned in Latin, where Latin schools existed, and so on. But not everyone was learned in Latin, and that's where this Germanic idiom comes in. That's where he created the Deutsche Messe, following those same principles of the church music that had been established for the formula, you say, for the Latin mass of millennia, and translating them musically and textually into German. Many people think of the Deutsche Messe as just being paraphrases of the Latin, but it's more than that. Luther wanted the people to experience this worship in the same way that the Hebrew believers and the Latin church before them had experienced worship in their own tongue. Right? The poems, like we learned about with Psalm 119, the acrostic nature of that poem, the cyclical nature, a lot of that is lost in translation. Luther wanted worshipers to experience that, not only for aesthetic reasons, but also pedag pedagogically, right? Rhyming, poetry, aids in retention, memorization, and catechesis. And beyond that, even after Luther wrote many of these chorales, particularly for the Deutsche Messe, people began to um, exposit these texts even further in an evangelical light, moving beyond what the original Latin had said and adding Christological truths and personal experience to these texts as the years went by. Many people think of Deutsche Messe and formula mise as um, somehow setting the stage and, and the definitive answer of what worship looked like in the Lutheran church. In fact, a recent hymnal, I won't mention the name, published, puts the title of German's, uh, Luther's German service on the top of an ostensible Deutsche Messe, but translated into English. And you have to go about seven pages into the order to actually see something Luther wrote. Because the Deutsche Messe took a life of its own beyond what Luther did. Luther created the Deutsche Messe because of a, frankly, birth of German translations that were in existence at that time. People were creating just straight out German translations of the Latin, like wooden translations. They were rigidly fitting the text into musical versions of Gregorian chants that did not speak German properly, as Luther would have it. Because of this, Luther begrudgingly, because he knew how people liked to take his writings and make law out of them, set his pen not only to writing a German mass, but composing one. With formula Misa, he didn't have to do any composition, because these Latin Texts already were set to music. Deutsche Messe, on the other hand, he set to composing because he wanted it to speak German in a musical way as well. And there he implemented a lot of those philosophical views of music that I talked about yesterday, particularly the way that they affect human mood and behavior. And I'm not going to get into a lot of nuance with that, which I could, but 
and, and I think it's interesting, but it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now. But just as an example, many of us are familiar with uh, the words of institution. They're in LSB, and we use them here at Return to Wittenberg that Luther composed for the Deutsche Messe. It goes, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Hopefully you're familiar with that. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. You notice how when Christ's voice comes in that chant, it's lower? Well, from a practical perspective, Luther composed that so that Christ's voice would be noticeable to the people. Prior to this, in the papal church, the words of institution were whispered. You couldn't hear them. He believed it was pure gospel being proclaimed to God's people. He wanted it audible, and not only audible, but the very words of Christ, basically a red-letter text edition from a musical perspective to be highlighted with that lower tone. And then even more in-depth than that, you could dig into uh, Robin Lever's text, Luther's liturgical music, for a lot more depth on this, and I highly recommend it if you're interested. But that lower tone, actually, in the humanist model, evokes kindness and gentleness. He wanted people to understand that Jesus was not a wrathful God that was out to punish them for their sins if they came to him in true repentance, right? That the Lord's Supper is a gift God is offering, not a propitiation of a wrathful God, but a gift that a gracious God, that the gracious Lord Christ, is giving to us. These are the ideas and principles Luther used in composing the Deutsche Messe. Now, the Deutsche Messe, like I said, it was not a law, and it did not become codified in the form Luther wrote it as the liturgical law of the evangelical Lutheran church. But it did inspire people, and it was the first basis from a Saxon, particularly Saxon-German tradition of Germanic evangelical worship, which then went on to inspire other traditions, and more fundamentally in the order of divine service itself that Luther had written earlier in 1523. Where we really see this come to a more codified light in an evangelical worship tradition that we're familiar with, well, maybe not, which I hope that we're familiar with today, especially in our context as Return to Wittenberg um, attendees, which you will experience tomorrow, especially in the divine service, really began, if you look on our um, outline that I have for you, with the Danish-Norwegian Church Order in 1537, and then the Saxon Agenda of 1538. Now, the venerable Norwegian tradition of our ELS brethren here uh, really began with Denmark when Bugenhagen took these principles of Luther's liturgical reforms from Saxony to Denmark, and then from there it spread to Norway as well, and are codified even today in evangelical, the Evangelical Lutheran Hymnary of the ELS, which is the church we're worshiping in today as a member of, or we're celebrating our conference in today, are, is a member of. Their divine service one, their setting one in their hymnal, is the Bugenhagen order, and it bears many similarities to the Saxon agenda that us German Lutherans or our ancestors would have been more familiar with as well. Many textual and liturgical and musical similarities to what Luther did, a lot of the canticles that he wrote, but also new and revitalized expressions 
of those chorales and canticles as well, particularly, for example, um, Nicholas Decius's All Glory Be to God on High, which we have a great festival setting of, we're doing tomorrow, became kind of a standard bearer of the Gloria and Excelsis in the Lutheran Church. And then for the Curie, for example, we're familiar with Luther's Curie from the Deutsche Messe, Curie eleison, from the common service that we have, but really the Curie fons bonitatis, Curie, Godfather in heaven above, became more popular. Uh, particularly in later centuries. So what does this all have to do with us? Why is this important? This is a unique cultus of worship that's unique to our tradition that our forebears thought was worth passing down. They thought it was worth fighting for. They thought it was worth coming to this continent for. The very first evangelical Lutheran liturgy in the United States was descended from this tradition, began in Saxony, promulgated by various church orders, not just the Scandinavians, which we'll get to in a minute, not just the Germans, but others, and we'll go through that as we go down the list of the former synodical conference members. But beyond the synodical conference, before synodical conference was a twinkle in anyone's eye, before the Saxons migrated here, there was something called the Evangelical Lutheran Ministerium of North America, dating to 1742. And if you have a chance to look at our historical table of hymnals, it's this volume here. And I have a paper clip for you, so you can flip right in here and take a peek at the order of service they had. And you'll notice that it bears striking similarity to the divine service that we're going to be celebrating tomorrow. In fact, the confidior that they use, the confession of sins, in other words, is the exact same version that we're going to be using tomorrow. I, a poor sinner, confess to God my heavenly Father that I have sinned grievously and in various ways against him, not only by outward gross sins, etc., etc., the glory and excelsis they use. It's all glory be to God on high. This evangelical tradition was the foundation of the Lutheran Church here in America before the Synodical Conference got here. Now, over time, as Americanization took over, it fell out of vogue. But when our forebears from the Synodical Conference came over, they restored it in their churches. Now, why did the Saxons migrate here in the first place? If we look at the Missouri Synod, which most of us don't hail from, Walther, CFW Walther and the Saxons migrated here pretty much as a unit and started the Missouri Synod because they were fleeing religious oppression that sought to stifle their tradition entirely. And there were three real elements that were attacking the evangelical tradition at that time. There was, of course, the boogeyman of pietism that we all know about, hopefully, um, that arguably was rightly pushing back against some problems with 
what they thought of as dead orthodoxy or traditions of men in the church. But unlike Luther and his reforms, they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They were getting rid of the Catholic evangelical tradition and instead resorting to strange forms of worship. But it was more than that. There was unionism, and this was a particular factor for them in the Saxons coming over. They were trying to combine their church with the Reformed churches. The reason we started calling ourselves Lutherans, by the way, instead of just evangelicals, right? You think about the Roman church, okay? They think of themselves as Catholic. The Eastern churches, they think of themselves as Orthodox. They have these salutary monikers. Well, we were the evangelical church, okay? We had to hyphenate it and add Lutheran on the end to distinguish ourselves from the Reformed because the Reformed started using the evangelical moniker too, all right? But we're the evangelical church, the, the original evangelical church, right? Well, the king of Prussia at that time wanted to combine all the evangelicals together under one banner. And obviously the Saxon Lutherans were reticent of that idea. They wanted to preserve their tradition, particularly their liturgical tradition, in addition to their confessional heritage, doctrinally speaking. But for them, worship was who they were as a people. That was the expression of the word of God in their lives. And if they couldn't worship freely the way they had been accustomed to doing from their fathers and from their father's fathers, they had to leave Saxony and they migrated here to the United States. And because of pietism and other influences, oh, I mentioned a third one, rationalism. Rationalism was another heavy influence. A lot of the historic chorales were being softened from some of the more mm, offensive teachings to modern sensibilities like the virgin birth or the true presence of Christ in the sacraments, the renewal and regeneration of man in baptism, right? These influences were perverting the church and true worship of God. So they had to restore these things. And from a musical perspective, another thing the pietists did is they slowed down a lot of the chorales. This is something you're probably familiar with uh, in the two settings of a mighty fortress that we have in our hymnals. The one that a lot of us are more comfortable with oftentimes is, a mighty fortress is our God, right? But then there's Luther's dance-like version that's often played like a dirge, but is actually supposed to be a mighty fortress is our God. And just a note on that too, Luther composed that melody originally. Again, idiomatic, a mighty fortress is our God, right? The emphasis there, it's beautiful, okay? The pietists slowed down those melodies, made them very four, four times stately in order to be more contemplative and meditative during worship, which is understandable, and Bach composed many beautiful chorale settings of those pietistic versions. But Walther and company, when they came here to America, they wanted to restore the true tradition, the original tradition, the metrical chorales. They took great pains to restore that. They created singing schools in their early churches to teach the people how to do it right. They took this very seriously, and the first order of worship which I don't have an agenda copy downstairs, but I have the choral book, which has not only all the chorales, but the liturgy of the first Missouri Synod hymnal. It's downstairs on the historical table if you want to check it out. It restores this music for God's people in the Missouri Synod. 
Now you're probably thinking, okay, that's nice for the Missouri Senate, but what about the Wells? Dr. Kuhn said earlier that we were just a bunch of, you know, we were something else until the Synodical Conference brought us into the fold, which it is true, we were founded in, in uh, some of these issues that Missouri was fleeing from in Saxony, we were founded and rooted in a lot of them rationalism. For example, Emily and I and my family attend a church in Oak Creek that was one of the founding congregations of the Wisconsin Synod. And our church actually split in, its, in the 19th century over a faction that went with the pastor that wanted to be rationalists and you know they were like denying the sacrament and the virgin birth and all that stuff and the other half that wanted to stick with confessional Lutheranism or their understanding of it at that time. This is the kind of stuff that the Wisconsin Synod was founded in, but it didn't stay that way very long. By the 1850s, and more into the 1870s specifically, there was a push for confessional orthodoxy because by that time we were already starting to have fellowship with the Missouri Synod. The Synodical Conference obviously started in 1872, but even before that, we were in talks and producing our own hymnal. And I actually have a copy, which you can look at downstairs, of the very first Wells hymnal, which is really, really hard to get a hold of. In fact, if you read a lot of the, um, the old theses and dissertations on the history of hymnals and liturgy in the Wells, which you can get really bogged down a rabbit hole with that, I won't bore you with it, but they say that there's no extant copies of it. I managed to find one on eBay. I think back in the 60s when a lot of those were written, it, you know, you, it wasn't as easy to access as we have today thanks to eBay. So I managed to get a hold of this. The reason this doesn't exist anymore is because the Synod quickly redacted it and published this volume in 1872, two years later. Why did it do that? There were 12 hymns that the Synod identified in here that were unfit for Lutheran worship in their view, in our synod. Now, when you look at those hymns today, again, I don't speak German, but I put them through Google Translate. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't see much in there that would startle a Lutheran today. But the association that they made with those hymns because of the authors and their peculiar views on particular topics like... Um, Millennialism was a big issue in the church back then, and some of the authors held millennialist views, and certain phrases in a hymn verse could be interpreted that way, not implicitly, but could be. Um, and so those had to be redacted and actually were replaced with hymns by Luther and other catechism hymns. But frankly, 90% of this hymnal, even the bad one, was identical to Walther's hymnal from the Missouri Synod. So even by that standard, this was a very orthodox tome for its time. And the liturgy that the Wells was using at the time of its establishment, because before we joined the Synodical Conference, we were associated with the Pennsylvania Ministerium, well, that was that first order of service that I pointed out to you earlier. That was from the Pennsylvania Ministerium. Now, it had changed since then, but the Pennsylvania Ministerium and the broader general counsel was trying to restore a sense of confessional Lutheranism and orthodoxy. They ended up going down a wrong path, which is why Wells ended up leaving that fellowship and joining with the Missouri Synod instead and forming the Synodical Conference. 
The reason I point that out to you is just to say that a lot of people think Wells was just a-liturgical and there was no thought put into our worship and we didn't have chorales and all that other stuff until TLH, basically. It just isn't true. When you look at this, when you look at our first agenda, which I also have there, which I will also have on the table for you to look at down there, again, it's this evangelical liturgy that I've been talking about. It's the same order of worship. I mean, little bits and pieces here and there might be different, but the substance, these chorale tradition, are the same, all right? It's the same thing with the ELS. Although ELS, the ELS didn't produce its own hymnal in 1917, they broke away from this broader Norwegian merger that was going on at the time, and they took with them the hymnal tradition of that time, which is interesting because of all the synodical conference church bodies, it's the only one that maintained in its first English hymnal that evangelical heritage of worship. And I'll get more into that in a moment. But the Bugenhagen rite that I talked about dating back to 1537, it's right there in the Lutheran hymnary, just like it is in evangelical Lutheran hymnary today. And just a brief shout out to the Slovaks. I'm not a Slovak expert either. But you can read about how the Slovaks sent um, ambassadors to Wittenberg to study under Luther, and they took his liturgical principles back with them to Slovakia and created a Slovak hymn tradition. And they have many beautiful Eastern-sounding chants and their version of the chorale that they created for their rite. And they incorporated many of Luther's hymns and traditions, but they made them sound Slovak. Just like Luther had made Latin speak German, the Slovaks made... Germans speak Slovak, and they created and carried on their tradition in keeping with the evangelical rite that they brought with them from Wittenberg. I also have a copy of their um, chorale book downstairs as well, so you can peruse that at your leisure if you're interested in viewing any Slovakian hymn tunes or liturgical melodies. So you may be thinking to yourself, this all sounds interesting, but I'm not very familiar with this evangelical tradition you're talking about. If it's so important, what happened? That's a hard question to answer in the brief amount of time we had, but if you put it really succinctly, you could say English. Switching to English was a major factor. Obviously, that didn't affect the Norwegians as much as it affected us Germans. But when we transitioned to English, we ended up incorporating and importing a lot of American hymnody, and not just Anglican, but particularly Baptist, Methodist, those kind of hymns, into our worship life. The first English hymnal of the Wells was almost exclusively Methodist hymnody. When you think back to Walther, and those Saxons when they came over here. There's a famous quote from Walther when he was asked, well, is it okay? Because, you know, at that time they were dealing with the reality of they're in an English country, right? And the Lutheran church is a missional church. We can't be stuck in German if we're living in an English country, right? The whole point of this evangelical worship tradition is that we speak the language of the people. So we need an English-speaking liturgy. 
Is it okay just to use Methodist hymns then? Because they'll speak English, right? That's part of the English tradition. Walther said that that was akin to soul murder, to expose your children to these Methodist hymns. Because everything we have in our own Lutheran tradition, even if you find a good hymn that might be pleasing aesthetically and might seem like it's saying the word of God, we have it so much better in our tradition already. And that is worth preserving. And more importantly, not exposing ourselves to the idea that these foreign traditions are of a piece with ours. Because even if you have that orthodox hymn that you're incorporating from a foreign tradition, what happens when your children are raised in that tradition and then they go and look at other hymns from that tradition? Or they start to realize, well, you know what? They do that a lot better than we do. That's not really part of our tradition. The Methodists worship like Methodists a lot better than Lutherans can worship like Methodists. Or the Catholics can worship like Catholics, in, in a Roman sense, a lot better than Lutherans can, right? When you start opening yourself up to that mentality, you open people up to going to those other traditions. Why stick with a secondhand version of it when you can go to the source, right? So, another aspect to this is the common service itself. Now, we all love the common service in our Lutheran liturgical circles, but the common service was born out of a mentality that was not in line with Luther's evangelical principles of reform. What do I mean by that? There was, a, in the 19th century, and it's continued all the way to this day, a liturgical repristination reform movement that wanted to go back to the days of the ancient church and try to repristinate a lot of these ancient things and bring them up into modern parlance. That sounds good in theory. It sounds similar to what Luther did, right? He brought back a lot of those ancient melodies and made them new for, you know, the German people. The problem is, this 19th century movement, it ignored the centuries between the early church, in its estimation, and the present. There is, especially for us in the evangelical Lutheran church, there is a tradition of worship that has existed for hundreds of years. And to ignore that and just go back to some ancient pure days of the apostles or whatever, it misses the organic progression of liturgical and musical growth that have happened through the centuries, which can be healthy and wholesome. It also lends itself toward, and I, I, I don't want to sound a certain way like I'm saying that's too Catholic, but being Romanist in our approach to how we approach the liturgy in the sense that we're, we're perfunctory in the performance of the liturgy. We have to have all these little pieces just so, in just the right spot, and if not, then it's not true worship, right? That's not an evangelical frame of mind to how we approach worship. The goal of worship is for the people of God to be edified by the word of God. If we get caught up in liturgical minutia to the point that we've lost sight of the word of God and its centrality, then that's not necessarily something we should be following. And I fear when you read a lot of these guys from these liturgical movements that really, you know, were springboarded in the 19th century, that that's kind of the mindset they're coming from, that they thought something was lacking in their tradition, particularly if you look at the Anglo-Catholics, because they're coming from 
Anglicanism that is, and not to get too bogged down in another tradition, and I'm not being critical of them, I think there is a venerable Anglican tradition that exists in the Book of Common Prayer for their right and for their people. That's not Lutheran, though. And it was decidedly divorced from musicality in the sense that Lutheranism was wedded to it, right? We were wedded to music because of Luther's philosophy of music and he viewing music as, you know, next to the word of God in its power, in its spiritual properties, and its nature as being part of the divine order and the fabric of the universe. The Anglican Church didn't have that musical tradition. They had a textual tradition, the Book of Common Prayer. There's no music in there, right? For the Lutherans, our worship tradition was the chorale. It was musical. It was the musical expression of the word of God. So for Anglicans, they're looking at ancient church tradition with their liturgical revisions that they're trying to do and trying to reincorporate those things that they had lost. Lutheranism never lost it. We always had that liturgical, musical tradition, and it grew and developed through the centuries and was furthered by our forefathers and preserved for us to this day. So to come full circle, what is worth preserving about our heritage? Is the worship that we're doing identifiable? Would someone come into your church and say, this is an evangelical Lutheran church? That is what we want to cling to if we want to have something to pass on to the next generation. If we just look like any other church down the street, or worse, a secondhand version of it, is that something that's going to keep us knitted together? Is that something that's going to keep our kids in the pews, or are they going to go wandering and looking for the real deal? The Word of God is central. Justification by faith alone is central. And these are imbued into our chorale tradition. These are the basis upon which Luther created our evangelical liturgy and our chorale tradition. It's my hope and prayer that our worship here at Return to Wittenberg, our conferences throughout the years and going forward, may provide a glimpse for our attendees and for others through the recordings of what that evangelical Lutheran tradition has to offer and why it is worth preserving for the next generation. Thank you. So we have eight minutes for um, questions and comments. Pastor Hendricks, are you in here? Let's see if that mic in the back is working. I can repeat the questions if anyone has them. Brian. Yeah, he asked, how does someone without the study that I've put into it understand why this matters and what to do about it? I mean, 
an easy answer would be to study more. <laughs> but, but, you know, to, to seek out people who are knowledgeable about these things. But also, our tradition is an experienced tradition, right? It's a lived tradition. It's to just experience it more, to seek out places where the tradition exists still. I mean, that's why you're here in the first place, right? Experiencing the tradition will help you understand the tradition. That's the whole point of it. That's why it's participatory. That's why it was passed down. These chorale melodies were taught by parents to their children. I mean, they're out plowing the fields, singing the chorales. They're on their deathbed. These chorales are in their mind. The greatest composers of all time are sitting down to write things. They're composing these chorales, melodies, into fantastical works of music, right? Experiencing them, even going to listen to works like that, right? If you want to get in more depth, I have provided a bibliography that goes into a lot of detail on a lot of the more nuanced stuff of this. I highly recommend everything on that list to get a fuller perspective of that. Yeah, Scott said that we need to put out excellence in carrying out the mission of the church, right? We need to put forward excellence in that. What we do in worship is not necessarily to draw in seekers, right? Worship is for the baptized. It's for believers, okay? Worship is for the people of God. We are incorporating the world into the church. We're not conforming ourselves to the world. Okay, that's what he was driving at. I believe you had a question. Yeah.
Right. His point was, for Anglicans, the Book of Common Prayer is unifying, whereas it seems like we have a smorgasbord of rites and things today. That wasn't really the case historically, right? It is true that the Norwegians had their right, you know, the Germans had their right, but by and large, we stuck to our agenda, right? We didn't have a liturgical free-for-all where this congregation is doing one thing one day, this congregation is doing another thing another day. You could go from one congregation in your district to another one and expect to see the same kind of worship. Not like we have it today where, I mean, the hymnal itself offers you five different options, right? That isn't how it was historically. There might, there's variety inherent in the liturgy itself. Okay, there are different settings of the Gloria that you can sing. There are different things like that. But the rite itself is pretty consistent, historically speaking. And that's where I'd say the difference is. Today, we've kind of just become a free-for-all. And to be fair, the Anglican Church today is also a free-for-all. So they, they're not that strict with the Book of Common Prayer as they might have once been. Uh, Yes, very good question. If you look back at my packet I handed out yesterday, I have a section in there about music in the home, and I go into some of those quotes specifically from Luther, but the example that uh, Keith mentioned from, from Heaven Above, the famous Christmas hymn, from heaven above to earth I come, Luther actually wrote that for his children, ostensibly maybe like a, a sort of in-home Christmas pageant, um, where he'd dress up or someone would dress up like an angel and the kids would sing back and forth and it was a cute thing like that, right? So yeah, there is room for this to be in the home and as I said yesterday too, specifically, the chorale was intended to be for children. Hymns are for children to learn. Just to give you a personal example, last year I had the opportunity to teach eighth grade in the inner city of Milwaukee and I made my kids, all from an African-American background, learn all of Luther's catechism hymns, including We All Believe in One True God, which we're singing tomorrow, you know, we all believe in one true God. And I made them pick a hymn to sing at graduation, and they picked as their favorite hymn, We All Believe in One True God. So don't tell me that the hymns and the chorales are inaccessible to the youth today or whatever. If they can get on board and sing it, loud and proud. There's no reason that our, uh, our, our children in our churches can't do so either. Right. Yeah, his question is, um, you know, Luther took the Latin and made it German. 
how much of an English tradition of the liturgy needs to be made still? And that's a good question, and a longer question than I have time to answer fully now. But one thing I would say is to remember English is a Germanic language, so a lot of the chorale tradition fits pretty nicely with English to begin with. But also, our forebears did do the legwork of translating chorales into English. They did exist. For example, the Pennsylvania Ministerium, their first hymnal, has wonderful translations into English that are very, very faithful, more so than some of the ones we use in uh, TLH to the original German. And the same thing is true. We translated, the Missouri Synod translated their German hymnal into English. They just chose not to use it. So that's a longer question and one that needs assessment of why those decisions were made and um, what are some of the rationale behind the movers and shakers that made those decisions. But like I said, that's another topic for another time. We're out of time. Yeah, we're out of time. So thank you all. And we'll take a few minutes, like two minutes, so we can recombobulate.